0: This podcast examines issues on violence driven by gender inequality, a global health problem that is likely to have personally touched the lives of our listeners. Please take care while listening and email us at svri at svri.org for resources.
1: The religious institution is always part of the socialization process, shaping social norms and shaping values,
0: attitude and behaviors.
2: Welcome to another episode of the sexual violence research podcast from the SVRI. I am Angelica Pino.
0: And I am Elizabeth Dartnell. Our vision is to see a world free of violence against women and violence against children. And in this podcast, we learn how to make that vision a reality in today's episode we are
2: exploring the role faith and spirituality plays in violence against women
0: you will hear from dr rafael kazaren a sociologist with a background in ethnographic research currently working in the department of sociology at the autonomous university of barcelona you'll also hear from Gida anani founder and director at abate Resource Centre for Gender Equality, and Dr. Sandra Pertek, who's based at the Department of Social Policy, Sociology and Criminology at the University of Birmingham.
2: Firstly, can religious beliefs contribute to violence against women? Raphael says, in short, the answer is
3: yes. Some religious dogmas and values can contribute to violence against women. But from my perspective, it's important to remark that religious beliefs Are not necessarily what leads to violence against women, but just the tip of the iceberg, right? So, what I mean with that is that belief, at least from a research point of view, it's a a pretty loose term and it's quite individual. People can believe in many things, but they don't need to do anything about it. But when dealing with violence, it's important to find the practices, the learning systems that allow someone to think that it's okay to beat women or their children or anyone for that matter. So, for this reason, From a research perspective, I'd rather focus on the interpretation of religious scriptures, some religious values and dogmas that reinforce violence against women. Um, Dogma is a set of thoughts that cannot be contested, right? So dogma in Greek means something that seems true. I mention that because first you need to be convinced that what is said or what you're reading is true, and then you believe in doing it. So... You often say, I read from uh, this, religion, this, this source where I read in this uh, fragment of the Bible or of the Quran. Uh, I heard this religious leader mentioning this is right or wrong. So more often, it's, it is a matter of the interpretation of others uh, in your circle, especially if it's coming from a religious authority. Uh, but besides dogma, we also have uh, values, right? So often call it the patriarchy or patriarchal values that are embedded in religious institutions that nurtured roles and stereotypes around what it means to be a woman and what it means to be a man. So what is in research is that harmful traditional practices in religion are often interconnected with... So there is also um, another point to that, which is the idea that some aspects of cultural and religious systems, they overlap. But it's important to remember that they are not the same. So they're not equal. Nobody prays for violence or nobody is culturally prone to violence. Or at least it shouldn't. So the idea from a research perspective is always to focus on these specific points to, let's say, open up the, the, the black box, as you used to say, of what means to believe um, or to have religious beliefs towards a certain practice.
0: Raphael spoke about how the patriarchal nature of religious institutions can both condone and drive violence against women. But faith, spirituality can also play a role in ending violence against women and violence against children. Gita says the influence of faith leaders can be far reaching. The religious
1: institution is always like a part of the socialization process, shaping social norms and shaping values, attitude and behaviors and perception. And it's a core Big, and play a big part of the process of education of girls and boys while growing up. And at the same time, it influences a lot perception toward what is okay and what is not okay, what is wrong and what is right. Also, another perspective, the, it plays a big role in the prevention aspect of, of violence against women at large, a role on the level of intervention if you have any kind of family conflict or spousal conflict can be one of the major references in the sense of seeking mediation, de-escalation, advice, also accompany of the family while struggling with the violent dynamic. And of course, it's a kind of reference for the mass. So whenever you also want to pass on a big message that can influence public opinion at large on condemning the culture of violence. The religious institution is one of the big influencers, biggest, uh, like major stakeholders that plays a role
2: on that front. When it comes to recognizing and supporting survivors and also bringing about dialogue and collaboration between key actors in this field, Sandra agrees religious and faith leaders play an important role. They influence all levels of socioecology, so we can see influence of religious leaders at different
4: levels. At the personal level, for example, they often help survivors to resolve spiritual struggles. If survivors reach out to them, they can help them to regain a sense of dignity to clarify some of the questions that they might have, for example, whether they were Able to marry again after the experiences of violence, if they were sexually abused by non-partners, some women would like to know whether they can gain purification. So sometimes religious leaders may undertake certain religious ceremonies to help women to regain a sense of dignity. And obviously, they are key to validate women's, women's and men's experiences of violence. They offer often psychological and emotional support to survivors. They should, and they some of them do offer pastoral support to people who are vulnerable to violence or experience that. And well, uh, in my experience, work and experience that I that includes obviously lots of research with the survivors. I interviewed 40 survivors myself from Syria, Iraq, and a a number of African countries. And I read over 200 transcripts over the last two or three years of survivors from different contexts. They would mention often that, well, they would like to speak to religious leaders because they wanted to resolve the spiritual struggles that I have just described. But also they sought them to validate the experience to acknowledge what they went through and that this was not their fault and that uh, they can just carry on their lives. So in that way, I think they help people to regain dignity and also gain perhaps some power to begin rebuilding their
0: lives to heal. We know how important it is to centre women's voices when working with the faith sector. But since many religious leaders are men, how do we make sure female and gender diverse voices are heard? Gida says women must be the focus of work in this area.
1: Through the effort being done on community level, this is where we ensure that it's a kind of uh, woman-led, using the woman-led approach and also the survivor-centered approach and having women in the heart of what we do. In, in trying to mobilize faith-based groups on community level to be able to interact and be engaged in the different work we do on community sensitization or even being part of the engagement in as allies to different women and girls safe spaces and ensuring also the interaction of women directly with different faith-based groups. So ensuring that their voice Uh, is heard mainly is uh, ensuring their representation, ensuring that they're able to reach out and also echoing their needs and aspirations and the different programming that we do.
2: Let's now consider what the research on faith and violence against women is telling us about what works and what does not work when engaging faith groups and spiritual leaders to prevent violence against women.
0: Much of Raphael's experience focuses on researching religious communities and practices in Africa, Europe, and Latin America. He says there are several key strategies to meaningfully engage faith leaders in the prevention of violence against women, both from the top down and, of course, the bottom up.
3: When you are dealing um, with religious leadership and um, different stances of religious leadership, I do believe that it's important to. Um, address positions of power in religious institutions in a separate way from lay leaders or religious communities. This happens because power dynamics between lay leaders and top religious leaders are very sensitive. This is not to say that bottom-up strategies are disregarded. It's actually quite the opposite. I mean, they're much more encouraged in a sense that lay leaders, youth leaders, fellowships in churches for instance or uh, prayer groups they are actually the core of um, many of the actions that are successful um, in the interventions that I participated on. It's important to fight in both ways either top leaders or lay leaders and religious communities allies um, this is a key aspect um, because not everyone is open to uh, dialogue about certain issues right you're also touching delicate aspects of someone's life and in this aspect if you're a religious leader you might have your um, line of thought driven to a more conservative perspective others have to a more progressive perspective so finding allies and people who are actually willing to talk about it and actually implement change in their context is very important Another aspect that that is also uh, being very popular in interventions is working with survivors of violence. And I'm talking here not only about violence against women, but also against LGBTIQ plus communities. Survivors, they have a very particular approach to uh, dealing with both sides of the problem or the situation here, right? First, uh, survivors that are in uh, religious communities, they want to keep their faith and keep connected spiritually but at the same time uh, those who suffered um, uh, sexual and gender-based violence know very well uh, what their implications of that in someone's life Um, emotional implications social implications family implications and even physical implications so there are key points of contact between both sides being able to create groups of survivors uh, within religious contexts and being able to create dialogues obviously after process of healing and a process of where confidentiality is also very important. Giving this sort of first-hand experiences to uh, talk with religious leaders in in religious communities about violence, uh, gender-based violence, is very important.
2: Guida says it is vital those working in this area are aware of the importance of religious institutions in preventing violence against women.
1: So one of the biggest mistakes that we, we have been doing as feminist movement throughout the years, I guess, is not trying to inform ourselves sufficiently around, around religious institutions. So one of the major cause of a conflict or not finding that common denominator in the dialogue and uh, building uh, alliances and also ensuring that engagement in our activism is not understanding sufficiently the structure, not understanding, sometimes lacking the knowledge around Their definitions and their perceptions and also their understanding of what does it mean violence for them, what does it mean, different notions related to gender-based violence, including uh, sometimes femininities, including child marriage, including marital rape, among other uh, different concepts. So what will not work and what didn't work throughout the years was basically not sufficiently having them engaged in what we do, and that is when you don't do your homework ahead of time well, uh, doing the dialogue and doing the education around uh, understanding how the different institutions operate. And also, um, it wouldn't work if also we come with an accusatory uh, as if you're attacking the enemy and positioning them in, in in that kind of category. By the end of the day, we need to acknowledge their um, their their major and vital role in any community, in any society, as we have been highlighting earlier, and their importance, important role in, in the socialization process, in the prevention, and also in the intervention and crisis management, and shaping the public opinion at large. They are one of the major allies and major counterpart that can join really the planning and the vision of driving a change in any society and and driving the change that we would like to see in our society and community. If we're really aspiring to have men and women being together equally, as equal partners, building their communities, building their countries, and really interacting with a non dynamic. This is only by ensuring that also men across uh, different roles and responsibilities, including being religious leaders, they are major, um, like a main ally in what we do. And that would be only happen if you understand and speak to the other that is different.
0: Part of Sandra's research with Muslim Communities explores how religion can help women find meaning or build resilience during difficult times.
4: So in my research with this Syrian and Iraqi women, they talked a lot about how they use religious quotes and the stories from the religious scriptures to make sense of their experience. So they would, for example, refer to some of the role models in the scriptures to gain strength, to learn from their persistence and their strength to be able to cope and be able to continue in their struggle. And this would help them, on one hand, build resistance, but also make sense of why things are happening to them and perhaps mobilize resources within themselves, power within, to resist, perhaps face the perpetrators or to seek support or to well find alternative means to find safety and to perhaps in the end Find exit from the relationship, abusive relationships that they were in. If they, if this concerns domestic violence, or to resist sexual harassments from outside of their families. This was one example of one Syrian woman who told me that she resisted an offer of transactional sex because she remembered one prayer in her heart and she said, if I resist this offer, it was such a ridiculous amount of money that she was offered. She said, if I resist, I I'll be able to go to heaven. So she, based on that, she resisted. But there are also other ways in Muslim women use Islam to cope and, well, heal from the experiences of violence. Obviously, prayers are significant the five a day prayer has been a lifeline to many of the survivors I've spoken to. And those who were reading the Quran who understood it, because not all women, unfortunately, understood what's in the Quran. Obviously, many women are illiterate. And those who understood drew enormous strength to
2: continue. Raphael also adds that there has been some research in South Africa on the importance of ensuring that people work with the faith sector around religious text and language.
3: I'm looking at uh, the data that I collected in South Africa a couple of years ago. There was a general claim of integrating more scriptures and reading scriptures in a way that um, we can um, interpret them uh, according to the current issues or current uh, uh, ways of understanding gender, gender inequalities, gender roles, there is often this sort of um, anachronic problem, right? When you're reading scriptures or reading certain, or uh, uh, when you have certain dogmas that uh, were associated to different times in, our, in, in history, in, in our lives, and uh, what's happening now in terms of exposure to information, social media, is changing the way we understand uh, um, aspects or readings that have been enduring for uh, many years Uh, so scriptures religious scriptures and integrating them and integrating ways to um, read them in a modern uh, let's say modernized progressive way is being very uh, required by those who participated in interventions another point that um, we can it's also connected to some of the work that we're doing at the JLIS SVRI Faith and GBV Hub is the uh, de- uh, decolonizing knowledge, right? And it's related to decolonizing knowledge. And why I'm, si- uh, I'm mentioning this right now, it's because when you talk about different environments, different continents, like Latin America or Africa or Europe, one issue that um, often happens is that programs, interventions are often based on very specific models that are not culturally adjusted. I mean, first we need to understand whom you're talking to. Language, for instance, is a very important thing. Um, I remember in some of of the interventions that I participated on, that um, switching languages was something key to make religious leaders open up uh, and and talk about uh, violence, violence that they suffered in firsthand or they actually um, heard in their communities.
0: Let us now look to the future. We know there is a lot of research from high-income countries, which mostly focuses on traditional religions. So what needs to be done going forward to shift the focus and decolonize knowledge in this field? Here's Sandra.
4: Well, we need to give more space to researchers, practitioners from different settings to be able to access appropriate funding to conduct quality studies and produce knowledge. We need to ensure that the geographical, all different geographical areas are covered. So we need to reach out to more, re, well, engage with more researchers or maybe build capacity or interests of researchers in other settings or allow access to resources for those who already are doing this work in Buddhist tradition, Hindu, indigenous religious studies, those who are in... Other faith traditions, that I probably can't mention all of them here. Um, perhaps we also should yeah, give m- maybe more importance to the subject overall, because this area of research on gender-based violence and religion, it's still not a mainstream issue. And I hope that in future, the way forward is to promote this research agenda as integral to the journey of ending violence against women and girls across different sectors and different stakeholders. In terms of decolonizing this knowledge, we definitely need to, well, have more platforms to exchange this uh, knowledge-free access to remove the economic barriers to accessing this uh, information. Well, we probably should give more space for younger researchers and practitioners, to, to produce such studies. And this is go- probably only gonna happen if we have more collaborations and partnerships that are more diverse and are inclusive of all different regions, yeah, and perhaps less research from the global north or done it, or done it in the co-production models with those who are based in other areas if the resources are the challenge
2: to producing, producing more decolonized knowledge in this area. So, how optimistic are each of our guests about the future of research on faith and spirituality and violence driven by gender inequality? Let's hear from Raphael first.
3: I call it positive, realistic—not um, not only optimistic. I mean, and I think that there are real experiences and, and evidence showing that this is a, an important and growing field, and and. Uh, it's an important way to build meaningful engagements, right? So we've got this this notion I take from the, actually from South Africa, from um, this model of engaging with uh, different stakeholders to look for responses and and solutions for problems such as GBV and um, poverty and other problems. So I do believe that um, um, research um, in the field of faith NGBV can um, really contribute to this um, idea of creating mean- meaningful engagement. I'm really positive about the outcomes that are already happening. I mean, I'd, a couple of weeks ago, I had meetings with researchers working in this field, for instance, in Ethiopia, um, in terms also of, of funding to this field. There is this um, term called, um, in academia, the development taboo, right? Um a development taboo is basically the the avoidance to deal with faith and religion in development issues and what we see is that this development taboo um, is being more and more challenged by this kind of research showing that uh, meaningful engagements and, and interventions are actually uh, being effective in reaching uh, communities i also believe that um, it's very important for um the youth uh, that is now more and more connected to social media and dissemination here is, is a key point. I'm optimistic because people have also more access to um, information and um, this information, when it's research-based and evidence-based is um, much more powerful in terms of leading people to um, engage uh, with real problems. So I think that um, in terms of, um, reaching the youth and, and making sure that uh, evidence is disseminated in social media, in spaces where people are craving for this kind of information. I think this is very important.
0: Gita says change is slow, but she's hopeful it will come. It will take time. I'm optimistic in the
1: sense that uh, it, it is the right way to go. It is what we should be doing. I know that change takes time. Change is not something that we, we 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 like, and we're not patient. However, like you know, change can happen. It's a cumulative work, and I think uh, with like building blocks, with the, all the effort, cumulative effort being done by different actors and
2: the and the movement, we will reach it. And Sandra is optimistic and believes we will see more research and more diversity of research over the next few years. I am quite optimistic um, by nature,
4: but also based on my experience. Yeah, I see the challenges of future research in this area because there is such a disparity between how the humanitarian sector approaches issues of faith and spirituality, religion and violence. For now, dominantly, in my studies at least, I see that the humanitarian development sectors are well avoid issues of religion or instrumentalize it. So based on recent increase of interest in religious issues that we see actually in the sector, despite of the avoidance, I think inevitably there will be some shifts. We can see that throughout the years, the last decade, we've produced much more studies in this area. There is more and more researchers undertaking such a research focus on spirituality, violence and religion, faith. So I hope we're going to see a lot of more studies on religious experiences, perhaps, of survivors and also how we can work with religion when working with perpetrators. So not only looking at the survivor's side, and prevention, but also how we can respond and work with perpetrators to reform them, drawing on the religious approaches or faith-sensitive approaches, however we like to call it. And there is this existing divide between the secular actors and religious actors. I'm, given my work, I'm optimistic that this divide will narrow down and there will be more engagement.
0: Thank you so much to our guests, Dr. Rafael Kazaren, Gida Anani, and Dr. Sandra Pertik for joining us on the podcast. I am Elizabeth Dartnell,
2: And I am Angelica Pino. You have been listening to the Sexual Violence Research Podcast by the SBRI. To find out more about our vision, visit sbri.org.
0: To free the world of violence against women and violence against children, We need to connect, we need to learn more, and we need to share what we are learning. So please subscribe, like, and review us on Apple Podcasts and share this episode far and wide. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next time.